You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I'm speaking with William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, a book that no other than Charlie Munger recently called one of the best investment books ever written. Throughout this conversation, we studied the best investors in search of maximizing our odds of long-term success in markets and life. William is one of the most insightful guests we ever had on The Investor's Podcast, so sit back and enjoy the always profound William Green. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I am here with a very special guest, Mr. William Green. William, we had you on, on the show back on episode 345, and it just seems like audience can't get enough of learning from you and learning from how the best investors invest, and more importantly, how they live their lives. So let's continue where we left off with the, uh, with the previous episode, because I want to talk again about Richer, Wiser, Happier, and then we're also going to talk about other things, but it has been profound, everything that's been going down in the wake of, of the book. It has received a lot of praise from well-renowned investors, and there's especially one person who is very enthusiastic about it, and that is Mr. Charlie Munger, who I think everyone in the audience know everything about. What has Charlie said about your book? I'm very curious about that. Thanks for asking. Yeah, Charlie actually said it was one of the best investment books ever written, and incredibly kindly said he hadn't read a book that good for a long time. That kind of had a big impact on me in a way, because I think when you write a book, you feel so exposed and so vulnerable. And you're sitting in your study, holed up for, in my case, four or five years, quietly in this vacuum, this void. And you're writing things with no idea whether it's going to resonate with anyone, whether you're misfiring totally. And if you're a writer like me, I've lived by the pen for basically 30 years. There are enough times when you've actually screwed up and you've failed totally and you've had stories killed that you spent months working on that you actually can never quite relax. You never really know, is this going to work? Are people going to like this? And so the reaction from a lot of readers who've written to me and have said, yeah, this book has kind of changed my life and it's had a huge impact actually has been enormously reassuring and enormously life affirming for someone as sort of sensitive to criticism and fear of failure as I am. And then to have Charlie, who's, what, 97, almost 98, and, and not known for being a soft and gentle critic, right? Uh, he, you know, he's a, he can be tough and brusque and, and um, very candid about stuff. To have him say, yeah, it, it's one of the best investment books ever written. That, in a way, it was kind of like, oh, I can relax now. I can sort of say, no, this actually is kind of worthwhile. And so I walked around in a kind of haze of self-congratulation and pride for a couple of days. And then, of course, all of my old insecurities came flooding back. And then what was funny is I was reading the first chapter of my book. I was looking over it again the other day, reminding myself of what was in it. And I'd written all about Monish Pabrai. And one of the great lessons from Monish Pabrai that I'd written about when I just hung out with him in Irvine, California, and I was flying back from California to my home, and I write this memo to myself of lessons from Monish one of the great lessons is, okay, live by an inner scorecard and don't worry about what others think of you. Don't be defined by external validation. And what I suddenly realized is I'm hugely defined by external validation. And 
I care deeply about what others think of me. And it was just one of those reminders where you can so easily fool yourself into thinking, yeah, I'm wired this way, or this is what I believe. And I was just kind of thinking, in investing, it's one of these areas where if you lie to yourself, if you're not self-aware, you're so vulnerable. And so for a writer like me, it's kind of a little bit comic that I can fool myself into thinking that actually I live by an inner scorecard. And there's not really a price to pay. It's just kind of a human foible. It's just like you look at yourself and you laugh and you're kind of like, really, I still care so much what other people think of me. But as an investor, I actually think it's hugely important that tendency that we have to deceive ourselves. And I was sort of thinking about this. There's, there's one point in the book where I write about my friend Ken Schubenstein, who's a, a neurologist who was a private equity investor and hedge fund manager, very successful, very, very smart. And so he's really an expert on the brain and biases. And I remember Ken saying to me that one thing that every investor should do is they should actually take Charlie Munger's list of 24 causes of, of misjudgment, psychological biases and the like, and they should rewrite it and include their own biases and their own failings and their own mental glitches. And I remember Ken saying to me that one thing he's vulnerable to is authority bias. So if he saw that people like Charlie and Warren, people he really admired, had bought a particular stock, it swayed him. And so he needed to be aware of that vulnerability. And likewise, Howard Marks said to me that he knows he's inclined to worry. So he just has to know that he's filtering things through that particular kind of temperamental bias. So that during the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, he had to sort of say to himself, well, I can't be a chicken here. This is an amazing opportunity. And the prices are so low that I can't be a chicken. So, so in some ways, there's a sort of self-congratulatory aspect to my, my celebrating the fact that people like Charlie have said something really nice about me. And then there's also this kind of reminder that I better actually be pretty careful because it, it shows me just how vulnerable I am to a, that need to sort of please others, feel like, you know, feel like I'm approved of and admired. And that's a, that's a vulnerability. And I, and I think one of the things is you just have to understand your own quirks. So you have to be a kind of great user of the machine called Stig Broderson, and I have to be a great user of the machine called William Green. And that requires me to understand, you know, that this bit is kind of falling off and this bit needs a little more, more oil and this bit needs a repair. So, yeah, so this, this kind of led me to think about a lot, of, a, a, a lot of ways in which we're vulnerable, I think. It makes me think of Paul Charles Elmanac. It's just this amazing book. And there's this wonderful quote by Richard Feynman where he's talking about I'm going to butcher this up, but it's somewhere along the lines of don't fool yourself and remember you're the easiest one to, to fool. Whenever you said that, for us in the value investing community, we often heard about the inner scorecard. We all subscribe to it. And I, I think whenever push comes to shove, it's like, no, we just can't. It will almost make us inhuman if, if we did. And if I had to choose one person aside from Chalamonga, perhaps, who really lives by that inner scorecard would be someone like Monis Papri. Absolutely brilliant person who now lives true to his values. And it's, it's wonderful. And even he said that whenever Buffett you know, gave him the nod of how he thought about charity and Dakshana, and he was like, oh, I, I felt I could die in peace. Or, and that happens even to Manis. Like even, can I say to the best of us, I think that's just how we are wired. And Manish, I think, gets enormous satisfaction out of the fact that Charlie, who he absolutely reveres and rightly, has kind of adopted him as a, as a friend and mentee and 
I think for Monish, who's always been a bit of an outsider, right? That's an amazing thing to have the resident genius of the investment community say, no, no, you're fantastic. And I think even with Warren, much as we say he lives by an inner scorecard, and it's true that he does live by an inner scorecard, I do think there's some degree to which Warren enjoys the bright lights of the Omaha annual meeting and 40,000 people flocking to revere him and listen to him and Charlie. And we're just complex characters, right? I mean, I think there's something that's really selfless about Warren and Charlie, and they're there as teachers, and they love imparting wisdom. There's presumably ego there too. And I, and so I see that in myself as well, like this combination of arrogance and pride and vulnerability and fragility. And I, I just think it's really useful to have this kind of inner inquiry, especially as, a, as an investor, because I think the markets are so brutal that if, you're, if you have these underlying fault lines in your character, they're going to get exposed sooner or later. And so if, for example, you're impetuous or you're fearful or you're inclined towards jealousy and, and envy of other people's returns, it's going to get you in the end unless you actually take some countermeasures. I'm thinking of this a lot recently because I, I interviewed Bill Miller recently and, and he's talking to me about why Bitcoin is so wonderful. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, geez, back when I was writing this book, I remember spending a couple of days with him at his home in Maryland and his office in Baltimore. And he was saying to me, look, William, here's why Bitcoin is so great. And at the time it was at 8,000. And I'm like, there's no bloody way I'm buying 8,000 on this thing that has no apparent value. What, what am I doing? And so here I am now. It's at, what, 60 or 60,000 or something like that. I haven't checked it in the last couple of days. And I feel like such a schmuck. And I can feel the pain of missing out, rising up and just knocking me off course. I had lunch with Guy Spear a couple of weeks ago, who I'm close to, who runs the Aquamarine Fund and who I know has been on this show as well. And I was saying to him, how, how do you deal with the whole cryptocurrency thing and how are you thinking about it? And he said to me, look, I'm a farmer. I, don't, I can just stay in these fields that I'm plowing. You know, I can just focus on these companies that have good destinations and, that are, and I don't need to play other games. And I just thought it was one of those things where I'm like, God, he has so much better a temperament than I do. Like for me, it's still kind of torture I just keep reminding myself, no, I shouldn't be investing in things I don't really understand. And so let me understand Bitcoin more. Let me figure it out. Let me really get my head around it because I was so distracted by working on my book. I sort of missed it. I just didn't really give it enough thought. I just think this whole area of, of self-knowledge, self-awareness, of asking yourself how you're wired, where you're vulnerable, where your strengths are temperamentally and emotionally and where your weaknesses are is just really, really helpful. Well said, William. Here on the podcast, I don't think it's, it's any surprise that we are avid readers. And one of the most popular guests we had on here in this year, that was business author Jim Collins. That was back on episode 372. And what Jim did with his team was to analyze big sets of data and then look at the most successful company founders. He concluded that there was no such thing as a right background to have, a right background as in this education level or rich or middle class or lower class or whatnot. That was not the determining factor to be a successful company founder because we heard all these stories about like this person, he had this background, so that's why it happened. And this person had a different background, which is also why XYZ happened. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how that translates into the 
investors you've been speaking to, is there such a thing in your experience as to have a right background to be a successful investor? There's such a tremendous range in the backgrounds of the people I've interviewed. But I think what I would say is, I think it's true to say that either temperamentally or figuratively or literally, they're all outsiders. They're all people who diverge from the crowd and question orthodox opinion. And it makes sense because the, the only way you can beat the market is if you diverge from the market. So you have to, I think, come from a slightly strange place intellectually or sometimes physically or temperamentally. Maybe, maybe you, li- you know, I think of someone like, um, like Sir John Templeton, who I interviewed 20 years ago in the Bahamas, and he had physically removed himself from the crowd by moving to the Bahamas. And so he had this kind of detachment. And he had grown up in this unconventional way in, in Winchester, Tennessee, in this kind of small town life. Then he'd gone to Oxford as a, as a Rhodes Scholar, and then he traveled for months to something like 30 countries, if I remember rightly. So he was always an outsider, thinking differently, and he had this, this informational advantage, I, I think, that came from the fact that he, he was studying foreign countries and foreign cultures at a time when nobody else really even had passports. For, I mean, it, wasn't, it just wasn't common for people to fly, for example. It was sort of, he was going to Germany before World War II in the run-up. So he was seeing the, the hysteria over Hitler. So he saw the Olympics there before World War II broke out. And then you think of someone like Monish who grew up in, I think it was a $20 a month apartment in the suburbs of Mumbai, which was then Bombay. So again, an outsider coming at things from, from a different perspective. Or, or you think of Bill Miller, who was studying in a PhD philosophy program instead of a, an MBA program, and then went and became a military intelligence officer. And I, I was talking to him recently about the extent to which studying philosophy instead of business had helped him. And he's like, well, look, that's why I gave $75 million to, to my old philosophy department as a gift, because I wouldn't have been so successful if it hadn't been for them. So they're all people coming from these weird backgrounds and slightly offbeat. Not, that's not to say you can't just go to Wharton or Harvard Business School. There are plenty of people like Joel Greenblatt and Howard Marks and like who, who've gone that path. But they're also quirky in their own special way. And then in some ways, think of someone like Nick Sleep, who I write about at great length in the book, who's also the ultimate outsider, both in the way that he invests and in his background. So, so Nick and for your listeners who don't know them, Nick and his partner, Zach, called Case Sakaria, but, but goes by the, the nickname Zach, they set up this fund, Nomad, right? That I think in 13 years have returned 921% and beat the market by something like 804 percentage points. And they regarded it as what they called a rebellion against the sin and folly of Wall Street. So the whole thing was incredibly idiosyncratic. You look at where they came from, and it kind of makes sense that they were so offbeat. I remember asking Nick about his childhood, and he said, well, well look, I went to this this private school, this boarding school, Wellington, which I think was set up by Queen Victoria in England. And it had something like 450 acres of land, one of these beautiful old English private schools. And he was one of the only kids who wasn't a boarder. So at the weekend, while all these other kids were playing at school, playing rugby and cricket and stuff like that, he was literally working in a pub. And so he said, I just was happy being outside the group. And so he got used to very early on not being a part of, a part of the group. 
and then goes off to university. I think he went to the University of Edinburgh, starts off studying geology, and then switches to geography. So again, nothing like the conventional route that most people have in, in studying business and finance and accounting and all of that. And then didn't have any intention at all of becoming a, a fund manager. He actually wanted to be a landscape architect. And he had this kind of fantasy that he was going to be building these beautiful parks, designing gorgeous parks where, where people could, he, he's a bit of an aesthete and, and he's kind of spiritual and, and philosophical. And he thought people are going to be able to, to retreat from the noise and ugliness and busyness of life. And they're going to be in these beautiful parks. And instead, he goes to work for this landscape architecture firm and discovers that he's just designing parking lots and dormer windows. And then after a few months, they lay him off. And, and he had an apartment in, in Edinburgh that he and his future wife, Sarita, had bought. And so he wasn't thinking, let me become a fund manager. He literally is just looking around thinking, oh, geez, how am I going to stay in Edinburgh? Well, let me think about what Edinburgh is good at. So he's like, well, they do IT. There are lots of IT companies. So, so he's thinking of doing that. And then he reads a book about the investment business, some obscure book on, on unit trusts. And he's like, oh, that sounds cool because it's kind of like an intellectual inquiry. So he ends up going to work at this tiny Scottish investment firm and discovers that he's really good at it. And so he's just like this weird intellectual who's landed in this profession by accident. And so while other investors are reading accounting terms and, and stuff like that, he was reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Pusick, which he became absolutely obsessed by. And the whole thing is, a, is this inquiry into, into values. And so Persig, who was this very eccentric guy, was fascinated by the idea of quality and what quality constitutes. So when Nick set up Nomad with Zach, it was really a kind of spiritual and philosophical exercise to see if you could create a fund that was all about quality. So would you treat your partners in a way that was high quality, or would you squeeze them as much as you as much as you could to get as much money out of them? Could you be truly aligned with them? So, so for example, they literally they set up a fee structure. For example, so I think they had a tiny, tiny annual management fee to cover their costs, and then they took I think it was twenty percent of the profits, but after a six percent annual hurdle, and then they were like. So let's make it even harder for ourselves. So after a few years, they put their profits, their, their, their incentive fee in a, in a holding bucket. And they said, well, if we screw up, we'll give back the profits. So they kept making it worse for themselves and better for their shareholders. And, and I remember Nick saying that at one point during the financial crisis, when they had this kind of emergency meeting in McDonald's to see if Nomad was going to survive. I didn't write about this in the book. He said, we were so deep in the hole. We were down so much. So I think Amazon was down about 50% that year, 46% for the fund, I think they were down. And he said, we actually owed years worth of fees. Like we were going to have to work for free for years. And then it just happened that they bounced back so unbelievably, they made about 400% over the next three or four years. They ended up doing incredibly. But so here, I write about this in the book. I, I say these were these two odd ducks who landed by mistake in the investment business. A total outsider, Zach wanted to be a meteorologist. And he used to read weather reports as a kid. And his parents just said, no, you can't do that. And so he was just this very eccentric, brilliant mathematician, went to Cambridge, wanted to work for his family's company. But his father got cheated, basically, and went bankrupt. He invested in a whole bunch of... His father had fled from Iraq, where they'd been purged, where Zach was born. And the father invested in all of these companies 
that were run by unscrupulous people on Wall Street who were, they were basically Ponzi schemes, I think. And he just lost everything. He was leveraged, he invested, borrowed money, and he got taken advantage of by unscrupulous people and lost everything. So Zach, far from wanting to be an investor, wanted to be a meteorologist and was disgusted by what he called the casino aspect of Wall Street, this tendency to line your own pockets at other people's expense. And so for him as well, Nomad became this exercise in quality. He loved the fact that you could say, well, this isn't about the money. We're just going to focus on long-term returns, on getting the best long-term returns we can. So everything is going to be super rational. We're just going to own about 10 stocks and we're going to focus on companies that have great long-term destinations. We're not going to read any Wall Street research. We're going to think totally independently. We're just going to travel and see as many companies as, as we can, study the best business models, and think about what businesses are likely to reach a great destination in 10, 15, 20 years. And that led them to have this very concentrated portfolio that was full of these companies that embodied this model of, of scale economies shared. So companies like Costco and Amazon that grew by driving down costs massively, creating an incredible deal for their customers and just giving them more and more and more value. And so as they grew, they gained this kind of competitive advantage that these economists of scale, they just kept sharing. And so Nick and Zach were just totally independent of Wall Street, just thinking about these questions of what's the best business model of all. And so in a sense, they're the perfect example of people who didn't go the conventional route in terms of studying business and investing. They were thinking about these weird questions from, from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance about how to build a quality fund, how to lead a quality life, how to treat your shareholders with quality, how to live in an honorable way. And then having cracked the investment problem, they retire from the business at the age of 45. And they say, well, we'll spend the second half of our lives giving back the money to society because we don't want the money to bend us out of shape. And we want the joy of, of giving back and seeing our money go to work and help other people. And so there's something so wonderfully eccentric and idiosyncratic about the whole thing. And I think they're just a, a really extreme example of this unorthodoxy, this willingness to question the conventional way of doing things. I don't want to depress people who are going the regular route and are, are saying, no, I, I want to go to Wharton and I want to go to Harvard Business School. I think that has tremendous value as well. But even if you look at someone like Joel Greenblatt, who I write about at length, Joel went to, went to Wharton and he was just appalled by the fact that they kept telling him that the markets were efficient. And he said, I just didn't believe it. I didn't buy it. I could see that it wasn't true. And so the thing that actually changed him was reading an article in Forbes about Ben Graham. And he's like, that makes more sense. The market is bipolar. I can see that. And so that changed his life. So even someone who went this kind of conventional path, like Joe, ended up questioning it and veering from it. I think, again, one of the things you have to ask yourself as an investor is how, how am I wired? Am I someone who, who's comfortable being outside the herd? Or do I need to be inside the herd? And again, it, it's not that one is better or worse. It's that you need to understand yourself so you know what game to play. And Howard Marks said to me, most, most people should index most of their money, which is a, a great path where you're exploiting the wisdom of crowds. But if you want to be someone who outperforms over the long term, I think you've got to be a little weird. 
you've got to be a little strange. You've got to be comfortable outside the crowd. And maybe that's one reason why I was so drawn to these people that I'm writing about is, is because I'm, I'm an English writer living in New York. I'm a Jew who went to, to Eton, the poshest, oldest English school, pretty much. I, you know, so I'm kind of a weird outsider. And so when I saw, when I saw all these maverick, free-thinking iconoclasts like Nick and Zach and, and, and Joe Greenblatt, Monish Pabright, I sort of recognize them as my weird tribe of misfits. They're, they're much better investors than I am. But, I, but there is something temperamentally similar, I think, between a, a writer and a, uh, and a weird maverick contrarian value investor, certainly. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I think that's a great segue to my next question for you, William. There's this saying that concentration makes you rich, but diversification makes sure that you stay rich. You know the best investors in the world and you follow their portfolios up close. 
Do you think that statement is true? It's a fascinating point. I think there's clearly a tremendous tension between the benefits of concentration, where you see people like Joel Greenblatt in his early career having maybe 80% of his money in six to eight stocks, and he ends up making 40% a year over 20 years at Gotham, his original hedge fund, incredible performance by buying weird little stocks off the beaten path that he said other people would have bought if they'd done the work. So there's that path. That, that's, that's also the path that Nick Sleep and, and Case Sakaria took, where when I chatted with Nick recently, he still basically just owned four stocks. His personal portfolio was just Amazon, Costco, ASOS, and Berkshire. And that's it. Four stocks in his entire portfolio. And Zach, who's never sold a share of Amazon, had, when I spoke to him last, had 70% of his portfolio in Amazon. And so, I mean, amazing concentration. So there's this lure of concentration where you look at it and you're like, wow, if you want to outperform, this is the way to go. And, and yet, it's also, they've done incredibly well because A, they were really smart. B, they were kind of lucky. I mean, I remember Joe Greenblatt saying to me once when I, when I asked him to explain how that original fund had done so brilliantly. Um, he said, look, we stayed small. I think they had something like $300 million in assets when they closed it to outside investors and returned all the outside money, remained really small. And he said, we concentrated our bets and we got lucky. He said, for some reason, we just didn't have any major disasters. And he said, part of it was I had a very high hurdle. I had to be absolutely certain before I invested in something because he said it tortured him to lose money. So it wasn't an accident, but there was an element of luck. I say there's probably an element of luck with Nick and Zach, despite the fact that they were brilliant and they figured out this one great business model of scale economies shared that dominated their, their portfolio in the end. But then, as I was saying, there's this tension because if you're concentrated and something goes wrong, you may not survive. And so look, say, at, at the Sequoia Fund. Bill Ruane ran. I remember many years ago, for your listeners who don't know Bill Ruane, he's the guy who, when Buffett shut down his limited partnerships in the 60s and the market was massively overvalued, he said, well, if you, if you still want to invest, invest with my friend Bill Ruane, who's great. And Ruane proceeded to have this unbelievable record beating the market by thousands of percentage points over decades. And I had this kind of rare interview with him, I think in 2001, where I was asking him the, the secret of his success. And he again said, look, I, have, I want to really concentrate. I, have, I want to know everything I can, about seven or eight ideas. And he said, if you find something really cheap, why not put 15% of your assets in it? And so at the time, this was 2001. So it was still, I think it was still the tech bubble at the time, the dot-com bubble. It hadn't yet burst in around March of that year. He had, I think, 35% of his portfolio in Berkshire Hathaway, which was totally out of favor. And, and he said, look, you have the smartest guy in the country running this undervalued business that nobody loves. Every, everyone is saying Buffett has lost his touch. And so he was totally happy to do that. And I was hugely impressed with that. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. But then you, you look at his successor, Bob Goldfarb. I remember Bill Ruin telling me he was absolutely brilliant. I, I've never met Goldfarb, but I've heard wonderful things about him. And that he's a really terrific investor. Goldfarb had this kind of stunning record and was hugely admired. And then had basically a third of the Sequoia Fund in Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which imploded. And 
I don't know, did it go down 90 something percent? And it basically ended this illustrious career, this great investor, this one huge mistake. And so I think that gives you a sense of the double-edged sword of concentration. It's a beautiful idea when it works. And if you're right and you're lucky, it's fantastic. But if someone as smart as Goldfarb can get blown up by Valiant, that's a really, really good lesson for the rest of us, just to be a little humble and a little wary. And I, I think of someone like Templeton telling me all those years ago when I interviewed him, yes, around 2000, saying to me, look, for a regular investor, a regular investor ought to own five mutual funds probably, and they should be giving you exposure to different parts of the market. And I've thought about that a lot over the years because he said to me, why would you be so arrogant as to believe that you can pick the best fund, the best advisor, the best country? It's tricky because Templeton was brilliant and came to office class at Yale and was a Rhodes Scholar and all of that. And so he was able to do things like, like at the time that I was interviewing him, it was the, the Asian financial crisis. And he made this enormous bet on a Korean fund that had been the single worst performer of the last year. And he put something like $10 million in it and made an absolute fortune. It, became, it was the number one fund over the next year. It was just a brilliant contrarian bet. So he could pick the single best country. I mean, he, he had the intelligence and the temperament and he was so on top of it that I think he could pull off that stuff. But I'm constantly reminding myself, because I'm a slightly fearful person and I'm slightly skeptical of myself and worried that I'm full of hubris and arrogance and pride and self-deceit, I'm always saying to myself, well, yeah, what if I'm wrong? What if this person I trust who's a great fund manager turns out to be a con man? Or what if, what if I have all of my money in one brokerage firm and there's a cyber attack, God forbid, and it falls apart. Or So there's a part of me temperamentally that's very drawn to these highly concentrated investors. I have huge admiration for the people who just own four stocks, 10 stocks, 12 stocks. I mean, I, I think that's wonderful. But I think you've got, you've got to be wired in a particular way where, where it's not painful for you when the market gets killed. And I remember Greenblatt saying to me that, there were times where in a matter of days, his portfolio would go down 20, 30%. And he said, that's fine for me because I understand what I own. But he said, there's no way that he could have outside shareholders who could cope with that kind of volatility. So yeah, I just think there's a, there's a real tension between the need to survive and the, the yearning to outperform. And you have to find some, some comfortable balance that suits your temperament. So you look at someone like Fred Martin, who I write about, and he, he just has this rule where he says, at the time of purchase, I'm never going to put more than 3% of my portfolio in any stock. He owns about 45 stocks, and he lets them run. So he owns them for at least a decade on the whole. So, so if something performs really well, great, it becomes a big part of his portfolio. But he said that, it, that strict adherence to that rule has enabled him to survive for decades and yet outperform. You look at Tom Gaynor as well, where he, he owns about 100 stocks, which seems absurdly diversified in some ways. And yet, if you look more closely at his portfolio, actually two-thirds of the portfolio in the top 20 holdings. So Tom describes himself as radically moderate. And I, th I think that's an interesting balance that suits, suits his personality. 
this kind of balance between concentration and diversification, outperformance and survival. So yeah, that's a sort of a long and and complicated answer to a very difficult question. I really like that, William. At the end of the day, it's all about learning, becoming a better version of yourself. Whenever I look at the value investing community, I really, I know it's hard to read the label from inside the box, but it seems like we have a unique culture in the value investing community. And I do think a lot of that comes from most of us having learned directly from Warren Buffett himself, if not in person, then through his letters and through everything that he's interviews and whatnot. Buffett has said himself that he wants his legacy to be as a teacher. Oh, he was asked during one of the annual shareholders meeting, like, what do you want your legacy to be? And I, I kind of found that to be very insightful. It wasn't like the best investor of all time or whatnot. It was to be a teacher. And whenever you study Buffett's relationship with his old professor, boss, and mentor, Benjamin Graham, I do think it explains a lot of how the value investing community got started and where we are now. So from your perspective as an educator in the value investing community, what do you think that will happen to the community when Buffett and Munger are no longer among us? I think they're irreplaceable. I don't see... I may be totally wrong, but I don't see 40,000 people a year flocking to Omaha to hear Greg Abel, Ajit Jain, Ted Weschler, and Todd Combs talk, if, if those are the successes. And I, that's not in any way a diss on them. I mean, I, I, I remember walking on the floor in Omaha at the annual meeting with Monish and Guy Spear and, and running into Greg Abel, and he, and he sort of just comes and chats with us and he's standing there with posing for photos with us. Couldn't have been more humble, modest, smart, amiable. I mean, you know, you just look at him as this kind of, you can exactly see why, why Warren would like him. Like not arrogant and yet really smart and just <laughs> totally capable, but not charismatic in the way that Warren and Charlie are. I mean, Ch- Charlie has a strange kind of charisma, right? Like the, uh, the I have nothing to add kind of curmudgeonly brilliance. But there's something, I remember it feeling like a comedy show. Like it was like you were watching Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon when you see these two old guys quipping on the, on the stage. And I remember once hearing, hearing Charlie say something about how, you know, when you mix turds with raisins, you've still, you've still right. got turds. <laughs> and, and Warren just sort of says, now you see why I do all of the talking. And it's just funny. You just, you watch them and you think they're not only really clever and really successful and really honest about their mistakes and stuff, but they're, they're funny. They're entertaining. And so it's kind of this gag show as well, where you're learning. I don't see that that can survive. I may be totally wrong, but then I think one of the things that's, that's extraordinary about the value investing community is, as you mentioned, is that these guys are teachers. And I, th- I think Ben Graham was extraordinarily generous in sharing his ideas. And Warren has taken that habit of being extraordinarily generous in sharing his ideas. Same with Charlie. They're, they're teachers. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a kind of didactic exercise, the whole company, right? It's like, this is, this is how you run things. And I remember Nick, Nick Sleep and, and Zach saying that when they went to Berkshire to the annual meeting the first time, it was like the scales fell from their eyes because Zach had been working at, I think, Deutsche Bank during the tech bubble. And he was just appalled by 
the willingness of Wall Street to sell any old crap to any credulous investor who'd buy it. And then all of these, and he was a broker and it just killed him because he would, you know, he'd seen how his father had been ripped off by unscrupulous brokers and had been bankrupt. And suddenly it's like this cosmic joke that he sees that he has to become a salesman himself of crappy ideas and he just couldn't do it. He was a terrible broker and couldn't sell anything. And then he goes to work for Marathon, the company where Nick was working before they set up Nomad. And they go to Berkshire together, I think in 2000 or 2001. And he's like, wow, Warren and Charlie, they're talking about businesses and businesses we love and businesses that are going to do great over the long term. And he was like, there's no element of the casino here. It was just the most fabulous thing. And so Nomad grew out of that idea of like, no, no, this is, we're not just lining our own pockets. We're not selling crap to people. We're studying great businesses and collecting them for the long term. And so that, that role model, it wasn't just that they were hearing the ideas from Warren and Charlie. It was they were actually seeing the behavior being modeled by them. One of the things that had a huge impact, I think, was seeing that Warren and Charlie were getting salaries of, I think, $100,000 a year to run this company that now has, what, a, a market value of $600 billion, something like that, $650 billion. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. They had set themselves up to make money as your partner. They weren't making money off fees, off screwing you, squeezing fees out of you, regardless of how well or badly they performed. They were making money alongside you. And when they messed up, they would tell you. I, I always loved it when I went to one of the meetings and Charlie said, yeah, we, we should have bought Google. We totally failed you. And then as if that's not enough to have told 40,000 people, we totally failed you with Google, he says, yeah, we totally screwed up Walmart as well. And uh, we should have owned that. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, that, that honesty and integrity. And so I, I think one of, the, one of the great lessons, it's not just what they write that's been so helpful, or what they say that's so helpful. It's the behavior that they model. And you see that and it makes you want to be a better person. This isn't to say they're ideal. I mean, they, they have their foibles and flaws just as all of us do. But you look at this kind of enlightened capitalism that they embody, where they're trying to be honorable, they're trying to be transparent, they're trying to treat you as partners. And it gives you a sense of, well, there's a better way to do this. We don't need just to be selfish and just to look out for ourselves. And you think of someone like Charlie saying, when I asked him about what the secret of a happy life was and what we could learn from him and more about a happy life, he immediately starts talking about partnerships. And, and he said, Warren has been a marvelous partner to me, and I've been a good partner to him, which I think is also a very interesting way to phrase it, that he's, he's diminishing his own, his praise for Warren is higher than his praise for himself. And then he said, and we have a really simple model, a really simple system, which is if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. So to me, when you see that behavior, that has an enormous impact on you. It makes you, there's this better way of doing business. And so I assume that culture is going to go on because I assume that in picking people like Greg Abel and Ajit Jain, those guys embody that same mindset and that culture will survive for a while. But without those two charismatic guys there to teach you, something will change, something. But then you think about Charlie's phrase that he's always been hanging out with the eminent dead. So he's, he's also drawing great guidance an insight from people like Ben Franklin and Darwin, Einstein. And so there is something about the way that great behavior endures or great insights endure. We're just very lucky that they've 
that they've left us with so so many transcripts of their talks and so many interviews and things like Poor Charles Almanac. So you'll always be able to to study their lessons in the same way that Charlie can study Ben Franklin. But I don't know. It's it's like with Jack Bogle not around. There's something different, right? Like, did Vanguard ever find a real replacement for Jack Bogle? I mean, I'm sure they were extraordinary business people and the company has continued to grow incredibly. But Bogle is a kind of moral force fighting for the rights of shareholders. That's For that, you have to go to the books that he left us with. And so, I don't know. So part, part of what I was doing in, in my own book, I think, was trying to celebrate and honor these people who I think embody a, a more enlightened way of doing capitalism. So I could, I could try to preserve some of those ideas. So I, I do think the fact that we can study these people who are great role models is immensely helpful, whatever you're studying, whether it's spirituality or philosophy or investing. You, you want to, as Charlie would say, hang out with the eminent dead, hang out with the people who were the best in previous generations. One of my favorite parts in Richard Wise, a happier was actually where I think, I think it was an obscure part that almost nobody will notice that I think I, I tucked away in the notes on sources and resources, where I talked about Jack Bogle peering up in a conversation that I had with him. It was on the phone. I thought the phone had gone dead and I'd, I'd lost him. And then I realized he was choking up because he was talking about his mentor, Walter Morgan, who was one of the pioneers of the investment business. And he said, Walter Morgan just had this idea that the shareholder is king. And he said, my God, once one of the shareholders wrote to him and said, Mr. Morgan, I don't have a good suit. Do you have a suit? And he said, and Mr. Morgan sent him one of his own suits. And that, that spirit pervades Vanguard, I think. So it's something that Bogle got from his mentor, Walter Morgan. And when Vanguard was driving down fees and treating shareholders well, that was because Bogle had learned that the shareholder is king from Walter Morgan. And so in a sense, I was trying to preserve this lineage of decent, honorable, shareholder-oriented thinking that had come to us from Walter Morgan through Bogle, even though both of these guys were no longer alive. Let's talk about the next generation of, uh, of value investors. Let's specifically talk about First Eagles, Matthew McLennan. Depending on which generation you are, you might think of him differently, not in any kind of bad way, but I guess to, to some generation, it might be the person who took over from the legendary Jean-Marie Vian just one week before the Lehman Brothers collapse. But in any case, you have, you have the privilege of having to, to speak with both of them. Back on episode 345, last time you were on the show, we talked about Jean-Marie Vian, and I would definitely recommend everyone to go back and listen to that. But today, I would like to talk about the new generation. I would like to talk about Matthew McLennan. Perhaps some in our audience are not as familiar with him. So for those of, of us who are not, could you please introduce him to our audience and also tell us about his untraditional background? It's a fascinating background. And, and first, I, I should tell you, I've actually been hired as a strategic advisor for First Eagle just recently. So part of the pleasure of that is actually that I've got to spend more and more time with, with Matthew McLennan. He does have white one of the most unusual backgrounds of any investor I've come across. It makes Monish's background and Templeton's background seem more conventional. I mean, literally, Matthew McLean grew up, I think, the first six years of his life in Papua New Guinea. I once joked to him, I said, you're the greatest investor from Papua New Guinea. And he said, sample size of one. It's true. It's a very unlikely background. And, and his parents were these 
these kind of, I guess, adventurers. I think his mother was an artist and, and physiotherapist and his father was a land surveyor. And so they start off, they just go to Papua New Guinea as a kind of adventure. And then they end up buying a property in Australia that was this beautiful place bordered by rainforest. And they were planning to get these permits to connect to the electricity grid. They couldn't get the permits. So McLennan literally grew up in this house that had no electricity, no hot running water. So I, I remember him telling me that when he wanted to take a shower, for example, they would take a black plastic bag and they would fill it with water and they would hang it outside in the, in the afternoon sun. And then he would shower under a tree with this warm water that had been heated up in the black plastic bag. And he said throughout his childhood, basically, they, they didn't have a TV. And then finally, his dad decides to get a TV. And because they don't have electricity, they rig the TV up to the, the car battery. And then one day his dad forgets that it's rigged up to the car battery. And so he pulls out of the, the driveway and drags this TV through the, uh, through the front door. So they never had a TV again. The TV was destroyed. So he basically spends his childhood in this very eccentric way, removed from what he called the literal buzz of existence. And so he just was reading and literally reading a lot of the time by gas lamp. And he had this grandfather who he described as a kind of true intellectual, who I think he'd been a doctor on a geophysical expedition to Antarctica. And he bought stocks and he collected wine and, and cultivated roses. And so, so there was this sense in which McLennan came from this kind of family of intellectual explorers and kind of oddballs who were, were totally outside the conventional path of life. And so there's something deeply intellectual about him. He, was, he said to me once, he collects these kind of mental models, these ideas, and he collects them in his, in his iPhone, I think. And he said he just goes over and over them, like, like his image for it was like, like raking my Zen garden. And so he's thinking kind of really seriously about the lessons of history, for example. So he would, he would be deeply influenced by something like Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, where he would see, well, the reason that Sparta and Athens went to war was because they had all of this hubris and this, this rush to judgment. And so he's like, so, so you want to have the opposite qualities from, from that. You want to have humility and, and you want to move slowly. So he's literally, so he's taking lessons on how, to, on how to live and how to invest. You know, one of the first history books ever written, an account of, of Sparta's war with Athens thousands of years ago, I guess. And so one of the things that he learns from all of these studies, these kind of free thinking studies of, of history and science and, and various other disciplines is to have this tremendous respect for uncertainty. And so what he said to me is, if you look back at history, you start to realize that the world is intrinsically uncertain and unpredictable. You need to position yourself as an investor and in life to participate in the march of mankind but to survive the dips, to survive these periods of episodic disruption where everything goes to hell. COVID is a perfect example of it, right? Something where no economists were saying, yeah, there's going to be this massive economic disruption and disruption to the way we work and the way we live from COVID. Nobody predicted that. We, we knew there could be a pandemic, but nobody said at the end of 2019, this is, this is going to change our lives over the next couple of years. One of the mistakes that investors make all of the time, as McLennan pointed out to me, is that we assume that the next period is going to resemble the current period or the last period. And 
This is something that Buffett warned about after 9-11, where Buffett said, look, I screwed up because I didn't realize just how exposed we were to the threat of terrorism. And he said, what it shows you is you need to think about your exposure rather than your experience. You need to ask yourself, where am I exposed to risk rather than what have I just experienced that makes me think that the world is going to continue this way? And this is a really, really important idea because if you look at a period like now, we've just had, what, 10, 12 years of a bull market. We're all feeling pretty good, at least if we're, we're investors. Okay, so the world is, a, is in turmoil in terms of the pandemic and there are all sorts of political woes and difficulties. I'm, I'm not diminishing that. But, but if you're an investor, there's a tremendous temptation to be complacent and to assume that the future will look good because this is our experience in the past. And what McLennan said to me that I think is, a, is an incredibly helpful lesson from history is he said, think about what the world looked like, say, from 1908 to 1911, where you'd just come through this period where everything was golden, the world was going well, the economy was doing great. It was a period of expansion. And so he said, if you, if you learned the lessons of your recent experience, it was that things are going to continue to be great. And then you look at what happened over the next few years and everything fell apart. So the first sign of this really was in 1912, I guess, when the Titanic sinks. And so, so the Titanic is this kind of emblem of man's triumph over nature. We can conquer everything because we're so smart. We can build an unsinkable ship. And then the unsinkable ship sinks in 1912, a reminder that nature, whether, whether it's a pandemic or an iceberg, tends to have the last laugh. So you want to you be a little more humble about your feelings that you've conquered nature. Then World War I breaks out in 1914, a couple of years later. Then 1918 to 1919, you have the Spanish flu epidemic, which I think killed 50 million people. Then you have the crash of 1929, and you have the Great Depression. Then you have the rise of Hitler that grows out of massive inflation, tearaway inflation in Nazi Germany. And then you have World War II breaks out in 1939 to 1945. So you think you go back to 1908 to 1911, this period of calm, and you think, well, we live in a benevolent, benign world where everything kind of expands and goes well. And then it's followed by three decades of disaster. So one of the lessons from those decades of disaster is that you don't really want to invest in stocks because stocks gave you terrible returns and were incredibly volatile. And yet, then right after World War II, from 1945 on, we have this golden era for investors where the world is calm, there's expansion. So you needed once again to say, no, no, this is a, this is a very Howard Marks kind of observation. There are these pendulums. It's helpful to view the world as a kind of pendulum where it's cyclical. The pendulum just keeps swinging. And so you have this period of tremendous calm followed by a period of chaos and volatility, then a period of calm, then a period of chaos and volatility. And so one of the great lessons, I think, is that you want to position yourself to survive these periods of episodic disruption and also to exploit these periods of episodic disruption. It's not, it's not just about being fearful and saying, oh my God, the world can go to hell. It's about saying, during these periods where things get crazy, that's when tremendous opportunity comes about, whether it's the early period of COVID or 2008, 2009, when the market was being crushed, or 
when the tech bubble blew up in March 2000, these periods of disruption, if you have your wits about you and you've positioned yourself carefully to survive them and to exploit them, are actually the greatest gift for an investor. But you need to position yourself so that you're going to survive those periods of uncertainty, of trauma. So what does that actually mean in practical terms for you and me and our listeners here? I think it means you want to start by saying to yourself, where am I fragile? Where am I exposed? And what if the next period doesn't resemble this current? Would I survive? And so one of the things Howard Marks said to me is, is the real question is, do you push the limits? And so you want to just make sure that you're not overreaching, especially in these periods that are conducive to complacency. You don't want to be investing borrowed money, I think. You don't want to have a lot of leverage. You don't want to have a lot of debt. You want to keep some dry gunpowder. And you don't want to add a tremendous amount of complexity to your life where you position yourself in a way that you have too many responsibilities that could come back and haunt you if suddenly things fall apart. You want to try to keep your life fairly simple, develop good habits like meditation and exercise and stuff that are conducive to equanimity before things go wrong and become chaotic. You already bedded down these good habits rather than waiting till there's turmoil. And so I think it's partly just learning the lessons of history, knowing that things are cyclical, knowing that we have this behavioral defect, this tendency to assume that the future will resemble the current period. There's another wonderful practical idea from, from McLennan, where he just looks at the markets as a kind of the global markets as kind of a, a block of marble. And then like a sculpture, he's just chipping away everything that he thinks brings fragility to the portfolio. So, so for example, he would chip away companies that, that have very expeditionary management that are taking crazy risks or, that, or companies that have opaque balance sheets. Or you look at countries that don't respect property rights and you say, well, yeah, maybe I can make a fortune in Russia, but I should at least be wary because maybe they don't respect property rights. And, and you want to chip away your behavioral defects as well. So you know that most people rent stocks for the short term and trade in and out. And they think that they can predict the, the market and time the market, which we know that we can't. Maybe Soros can, I don't know, or Drucker Miller or, or Jim Simons. I, I don't know. But the rest of us can't. So you're chipping away all of these sources of fragility and you're focusing on error elimination rather than just assuming that everything is always going to be golden. And then likewise, when the pendulum shifts direction and suddenly all of those unresilient investors are reeling and are frightened, you're in a position to step in calmly as Howard Marks did in 2008, 2009 and say, well, yeah, things are so cheap now that actually this is a tremendous opportunity. So it's a different way of operating in the world where instead of being a heat-seeking missile and chasing whatever's hot at that moment, you're positioning yourself so that you're detached from, from the crowd and you're just observing it and you're saying, when, when is risk priced attractively? When is it not priced attractively? And how can I just behave in a more dispassionate and rational way. That's hard to do. You see it with someone like Buffett, where Buffett gets criticized for sitting on $140 billion in cash or whatever. It's very difficult. And you look like a fool for long periods when everything's going right. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He's a very good investor. 
And as part of his, he bought a, a Tesla three years ago, and he has a sort of play portion of his portfolio. It's like a tiny portion of his portfolio. And he said to me, yeah, I put $2,000 in, in Tesla stock at the time, which is nothing, right? And he's like, it's $50,000 now, three years later. And there's a part of me that hears that. And I'm like, I can't believe you know, that I didn't buy Bitcoin when Miller told me it was $8,000 a coin and I, and I didn't buy Tesla. And so actually to have that emotional distance, that detachment is very, very hard in, in real life. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. And say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there helping you counter the rising cost of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative and keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. I like that example, William, and it sort of like takes me to the next question because I would like to talk about how you invest because you 
you've been on the show quite a few times and it's clear from the conversations that you're a very humble person. And, and you even said today that you you don't feel like you were wired the same way as the greatest investors. And I think that's something a lot of our listeners can can resonate with. You know, we, we hear all these things, we Perhaps some of it is a bit anecdotal and we think we should do the same mm. thing, but like pulling a trigger, that's just, that's just hard. But then the big difference is that you have access to these investors, which is not the case for our listeners. And so with all of your, your knowledge, with, with the access that you have, I'm curious to hear how you decided to invest with three active money managers. You also have two passive index funds, ETFs, and, and you also still do a few individual stock picks. Like, How did you come up with that was the right strategy for you. What was your process? And it may not be the right strategy. But yeah, hopefully the way that I've thought through this issue is at least instructive. At least it highlights some of the issues that I think we have to grapple with. So I've owned two index funds, two Vanguard index funds, just the international index and the US total market index fund that I've owned for decades, basically. Whenever my wife is putting money in a 401k or an IRA, or I'm putting money into a 529 plan for my two kids, for example, it would always go into index funds like that, basically. And the reason for that, I've owned index funds in my own account as well. I, I still do. The reason for that is that I'm kind of hedging against my own fallibility and my own hubris. And I'm aware that over the very long term, the chances of my outperforming after expenses and after taxes are not great historically. And so I think I have a competitive advantage that comes from the fact that I know a lot of great fund managers, and I think I can pick some of them. But on the other hand, I'm aware of my powers of self-deception and self-delusion and hubris. And so, so I'm hedging against that. And the fact that I'm investing my wife's money and my kids' money that way is in a sense what I'm doing is I'm saying they shouldn't pay the price for my hubris, for my self-deception. And so if I'm wrong and I'm not that good, then they'll be fine. That's how I thought through that issue. And then at the same time, clearly one of the most important determinants of whether you're a successful investor is just keeping costs down. I remember Jack Bogle saying to me many years ago, he said that the math of investing was so obvious. It was so elementary. It was just so clear that on average, index funds were going to outperform actively managed funds because the costs were just so much lower. And people just accused him in the early days of it being an exercise in mediocrity, but it turned out to be true. So I know that keeping costs down overall and not trading in and out of the market and just consistently adding to that pot of index funds is going to be a smart thing to do over the long term. And so I've done that. That's one bucket of the portfolio. And I've also owned Berkshire Hathaway for not nearly as long as I should, but for a while. And I thought they were past their peak many years ago. And so I was like, no, nah, I, I missed it already. Same, my same instinct with Bitcoin or Tesla, you know, I always think I've missed it. And it goes back, I remember when I was like 17 years old at boarding school and the Rolling Stones were doing a reunion tour. And I was like, no, nah, I missed it. They'd, I missed the golden years. They're like 50 now. And um, I was like, why would anyone go see them when they're 50? They were probably in their late 40s. And I just thought I'd missed it. So I didn't go see them play at Wembley. And so it's kind of the same that same sense that you always kind of miss the boat already. So here I have it with investing as well. But again, with Berkshire, one of the things that I'm thinking, I'm not thinking, okay, so it's going to massively beat the market over many years. I think it'll do well. I think it's resilient. It's set up to be the last man standing. It's very conservative. And I like that. So that suits my temperament. 
but it's also that you're not paying a management fee. So again, it's a way of saying, yeah, you have the float working for you and you have no management fee. So you add that to my index funds and I've got low costs working for me. So I think that's a, that's a really important part of thinking about how you're going to succeed over the long term. The other really prosaic, banal thing to say is that one of the great lessons of investing that I think we probably don't talk about enough is that if you just get this mundane thing right of taking full advantage of your IRA, your 401k plan, your 529, whatever tax-deferred vehicles are available to you, you're so far ahead of the game. So if you just keep putting money in low-cost funds, in tax-advantaged vehicles, you kind of won already. Those are two smart things that I think I've done. We'll see if they turn out to be smart. But so far over the last 30 years, they've been smart. And they're easy to do. But then once in a while, what happens to me is I get carried away because I see, so I, so I vow that I'm not going to buy individual stocks. And then I do something like I, I go to India for five days with Manish Pabrai and we're traveling around. And I see that things are getting killed and he's buying stuff that's cheap. And it's really hard for me not to say, I can see what he's doing. And I can see that it's really smart. And so there's a part of me that also, I guess it's a form of authority bias, as we were talking about before with Ken Schubenstein. That when I see people that I admire and who I think are really smart and who've done the work, there's a part of me that wants a piece of that. I think in a way, there's an idiosyncrasy here to my, my wiring, which is I'm kind of an empathetic person and I interview these people and I get into their heads and I get into their lives. And I think buying a stock that they bought very cheap in a contrarian way that nobody else liked. There's a sense in which I'm aligning myself with them temperamentally and emotionally. It's a, a weird vulnerability of mine, I think, because um, it's kind of like, this is my team. These are people I like and admire. And so when COVID started to ravage the markets in early 2020, I saw that Monish had bought, he hadn't really owned any US stocks for a while, one or two maybe, but he hadn't bought anything really, didn't. He couldn't find a single stock to buy out of 3,700 public companies in the US. And so he'd been buying stuff in Korea and China and places like that. And then when the market got slammed by COVID, he bought 13% of Seritage growth properties, this, um, this mall operator. And to me, there's something kind of beautiful about that, right? Like it's a, it's a consumer contrarian thing to do. The last thing you want to buy when nobody is allowed to leave their homes and go shop in a mall is a mall operator. And I see that and I'm like, well, he's bought 13% of it. So this is not like Monish dabbling. This is Monish. And I remember talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to make 10 times my money over the next 10 years. And so there's something that's irresistibly seductive about something like that for me. It's someone I like and admire, a massive bet by them. It's contrarian, which appeals to me because I'm naturally not part of the herd. It makes abundant sense because it's like, you know how we always hear those stories where someone says, yeah, I bought a, a brownstone in the heart of Manhattan in the 1970s when New York was going bankrupt. And so there are these periods of episodic disruption where you can take advantage, you can buy a prime asset that you then tuck away for many years. So around June and July 2020, when the market was still getting killed, I, I bought Seritish and as it kept going down, I kept buying more. And so I did that. And then I think around September 2020, when Berkshire was massively out of favor, 
I was thinking, well, I'm going to be happy to own Berkshire pretty much forever, I think. So let me just keep adding to that. So I bought that about four times as well as the market was getting killed. Those were a couple of moves where I was just, I was tucking away something for the very long term that was out of favor that I thought I'd like to own for a long term, for the long term. And I think that's rational and I think it's sensible. But the problem is that A, I hadn't really done the work. So I don't have the conviction that Monish has. So I don't really understand Seritage. And so one thing Guy Spear, who owns Seritage as well, said to me is, he's like, yeah, but Monish may, may have been underestimating just how vulnerable Seritage was at the time. Yeah, they own great properties. But what if, you know, Monish has always, I think, been happier with leverage and risk, say, than Guy. It's just a, you know, that quirks a character. He's just, you know, he's more more optimistic, more aggressive. And Guy was like, well, you know, Berkshire Hathaway owns Seritage's debt. Buffett had a huge personal investment in Seritage. So we were cloning Buffett at a much lower price. And the chances were, knowing that Berkshire's a very honorable, long-term thinking business, that they weren't going to make Seritage go bankrupt. But Guy's point to me is, you couldn't really know that. And so maybe I'm misquoting him, but that was, he was just saying, it wasn't quite as risk-free as Monish seemed to think. And so Guy was sort of a little trepidatious during that period. He was, I, I don't think he, he bought more, I think, but I don't think he was aggressive about it. Whereas Monish was like, there's no, there's no risk here. I'm going to make 10 times my money. And so I'm looking at that and I'm just like, well, I don't really know. I don't have the conviction. And so if everything goes wrong, will I be able to stick with it? And so I'm just kind of aware of the fact that I'm a little bit too emotional, a little bit too fearful and a little bit too anxious. I'm a little impatient as well. And so, so even though I think I'm going to own Seritage for 10 years, and I think I'm going to own Berkshire indefinitely. In actuality, who knows if I'll have that patience? So one of the things that I've done over the years is just to outsource, outsource these decisions to people like Guy Spear, whose aquamarine fund I've just been invested in for whatever, 22 years or something like that. Because I feel like even though he's slightly fearful too, which matches my temperament, and he's cautious and he's long-term, so he's similar to me in his temperament, but he's much more rational, I think. And he's, he's got much deeper knowledge studied this stuff more, he cares about it more. Uh, he has more, you know, he has accounting skills and mathematical skills and, and he's focused on it, whereas I'm just not. And so, so I think, again, it goes back to this question of self-awareness, of just knowing, are you playing a game that you can win? Are you set up? I mean, this is something that Munger talks about a lot, right? Like Munger, Munger said, if you're five foot three, you probably don't want to have a career as a basketball player, you know, play games that you can win. And so, so to some extent, I think the investing game is a game I can win because I know some really good investors. But to some extent, I'm also deeply aware that my temperament is bad. Not bad, but not good either. It's a mix. And, and so I also invested, there was one point where I got kicked out of a hedge fund that I'd been invested in for something like 14 years because they changed the structure of it. And so I was no longer allowed to invest in it. And I remember saying to Guy Spear, so I don't want to invest more with you because I'm already too exposed to you. So who should I be looking at? And he told me to meet Josh Tarasov, who I met, who's become a friend who I like a lot. And again, and I'm not saying this is an advertisement for either Guy or Josh. I'm just trying, kind of trying to take you through my, my thinking process. And so I ended up investing with Josh Tarasov. 
who runs a concentrated portfolio. And I, I think it's closed to new investors, which I also really liked because like Guy, neither of them were asset gatherers. They were both people who ran small, pretty concentrated funds. Josh's is more, more concentrated, more aggressive than Guy's, I would say. And one of the things I really liked in, when I met Josh, which again sounds idiosyncratic, is he meditates really seriously. So he has this kind of calmness. So he's a very bright guy. He'd come out of Goldman Sachs. And he's also a real iconoclast, a kind of maverick. And he just, so he has a portfolio of about 12 stocks. And he's very long-term. He doesn't care what the market is doing. And he lets them ride. He lets his winners ride. And I can just see he's much more rational than I am. I don't know. I had this at lunch with him a few weeks ago. And I remember asking him, about his parents. And I was saying, so who do you take after more? And his father had been in the investment business. So you would expect it was his father. And he said, no, I'd probably take after my mother more. And I said, what's she like? And he said, chill. And I thought that was a wonderful word. And when I look at Josh, I'm like, yeah, he's chill. And I'm not. And that's a disadvantage for an investor. It's probably great as a writer. The fact that my emotions are kind of tempestuous and my mind is all over the place. And and I'm constantly kind of reading weird stuff because my intellect is kind of like undisciplined and roving all over the place. Those are really good characteristics for a writer. And the fact that I'm kind of empathetic and emotional and can get inside the minds and emotions of the people I'm interviewing is really helpful. But the intensity of my emotional life is great for that particular game of writing and interviewing. It's not great for investing. So again, it's, it's just so sorry if all of this sounds really self-referential, but I actually think it's kind of important in terms of the takeaways for, you, for your listeners of just saying, you've got to know yourself and say, am I playing a game that I'm equipped to win? And if, if Howard Marks is right, and Joe Greenblatt is right, and Buffett is right, that most of us should be indexing, that's a pretty good default position. I at least think a chunk of what I, what I invest should, should be in index funds. And then if I want to play around with other stuff, okay. But don't delude myself into thinking that I'm equipped to win a game that I'm not necessarily equipped to win. Very good advice, William. I just want to give one quick handoff before we continue with the outline, because back in the Berkshire weekend, for those of who have been following the show, they would know the Berkshire weekend as the first weekend of May. I spoke with Manish and we specifically talked about his investment in Seritech growth properties. So I just wanted to give the handoff to that episode. 347. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And you can make up for yourself whether you think that, that Manus and William are, are right or wrong. And just full disclosure, and I think I mentioned this before, I, I'm an investor in Seratis as well, but it's a very popular stock in the value investing community also because of Manus and because it was Warren Buffett as the very first one made a um, large investment. I think at the time it was uh, at a price of 35. It's trading at 15 now. Manus bought it around six to nine as far as I remember. Someone along those lines. Another investor in Seritech, and that person you mentioned quite a few times, that is, that's Guy Spear. How can you not just love Guy? We're speaking to him later this year, and it's always great hearing from, from him. But uh, more than just speaking with Guy, I actually think it's, it's interesting to speak to you about Guy because you have a very close relationship. And I also just want to say for the record, both you and Guy stand out to me as some of the kindest people in the value investing community and in, in, in just in general. We're all shaped by our experiences. And having known you, being lucky enough to know you for quite some time, I know that you shared that perhaps being, being Jewish and, and having refugees in your family, that's something that has impacted you. Perhaps not, you can say the same thing for Guy, but could you talk to us about your relationship with Guy and 
and also how you avoid biases whenever you are investing along, alongside him in acromarine capital, given that you might be kindred spirits too. How do you separate mm. that? One thing I'm actually doing is I'm exploiting a bias and a quirk in my personality. So because I, I'm a relatively loyal friend, I think, I don't want to betray my friendship with Guy. I use that to keep myself patient. And so I've invested in the fund for over two decades already. And I've said to him, this is a 40-year investment. And so I know that I need to be a long-term investor in order to compound. I know that I, I should make fewer decisions. And so part of what I'm exploiting is this quirk in my character to keep me patient. I don't want to disappoint Guy and embarrass him by saying, yeah, I'm cashing out of your fund. And so it just keeps me patient. And Guy, I remember him buying Berkshire Hathaway, I think in around 1999, 2000, when, when Buffett was massively out of favor. He put something like a quarter of the Aquamarine Fund in Berkshire Hathaway at the time when every, everyone felt that Buffett had lost it. And same time as Bill Ruane was making that huge investment or had 35 or 37% of, of the Sequoia Fund in, in Berkshire Hathaway. Guy has just held Berkshire ever since. He's just incredibly patient. And I could never have done that. I don't have the temperament to sit on something and do nothing for 20 years. Whereas Guy default is to do nothing. He's got this extraordinary ability just to sit on his hands. And I remember going to him a couple of years ago and saying that I'd interviewed some famous investor who was telling me that Buffett and Munger had aged out. They just weren't good anymore. They didn't know what they were doing and we should get out of Berkshire. And I went to Guy and I was like, what do you think? And Guy was like, yeah, uh, only just did nothing and kept owning Berkshire. And I remember going to Nick's sleep and Nick was just like, yeah, no, it just has a great culture. It's very long term, got a great culture. And so he did nothing. And so and since then, Berkshire has done tremendously well. And if I got panicked out of the situation because one brilliant guy had told me that they'd aged out, I would have got washed out of it. And so part of what I'm doing in, in this case, I don't think my bias is actually a problem. I actually think I'm exploiting the fact that I'm friends with Guy to be long-term and to be patient. And he's exploiting his ability to sit on his hands and do nothing to just ride companies like Berkshire and Nestle and stuff like that, and, and some more obscure companies that are maybe a little racier, to ride them for the long term. To go back to this question of my friendship with Guy, it really began, we were actually at Oxford together, but he was a couple of years above me. and I didn't really know him at all there. I, I have this vague memory of him as this kind of dashing young guy with a red cashmere scarf dating some uh, very attractive woman and me being slightly resentful of him. And then a few years later, we met in New York because I was trying to join this club in New York that traditionally is a very posh club where you play various racket sports. And I, I play this game, real tennis or, or court tennis, which is sort of the old version of tennis that Henry VIII played at, at Hampton Court, which has a, a drooping net in the middle and these handmade balls. It's a very beautiful game. And I played seriously at Oxford. I played pretty much every day while I was at Oxford. So this was the one place you could play in New York. And so I was kind of waging this military campaign to get into this very exclusive kind of waspy club that traditionally was known as being anti-Semitic, like they had never really allowed Jews for a long time. It's no longer anti-Semitic, but it certainly was in historically. And Guy was a member. And so I remember going around and meeting all of these members who could help me get in. And I met Guy and I got into this club because I, was, I went to Eton and Oxford and I sounded like a posh Englishman. 
I remember going out with Guy after he had helped me get in. He was one of you know the seven people or whatever who wrote letters for me and introduced me and vouched for me. And I felt kind of guilty that I concealed the fact that I was Jewish. And I said to him, would they have let me in if they had known that I was Jewish? And he went kind of pale. And he was like, you're Jewish? And I said, yeah. And he said, I thought I was the only one. So I think that was the moment where we both realized that we were these kind of posh seeming Englishmen, but who actually were secretly getting into these very posh environments where they didn't realize that we were Jews and that they wouldn't traditionally have let us in. And in some strange way, that created this really strong bond between us. Because I think, as I was saying before, with a lot of great investors, but also with writers, we are outsiders. And there's something about being both on the inside, but also always feeling that you're on the outside that's very powerful. I see that very much in Guy, that he's, in some senses, he's a consummate insider. He's liked by lots of people. He was, he was a tutorial partner of David Cameron, the former British prime minister at Oxford. I mean, what could be more inside than that? But in his own mind, he's an outsider. And in my mind, I'm an outsider, even though the appearance of it may be different, that I, I seem like an insider, but I don't feel that way. So over the years, we became friends. We used to meet up for lunch in New York, and we would chat about investing and stuff. And I was a young journalist. I invested very early in his fund. I didn't realize that he had kind of tarnished his reputation by working for D.H. Blair after leaving Harvard Business School. I just wasn't really aware of it. This only really came out when we wrote about it in his memoir, The Education of a Value Investor. I just saw this guy was really smart. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to invest with him. And so in a way, it wasn't very good due diligence. It was much more about trusting the person's intelligence. But I didn't, I think what I saw also very early on is he had structured it in a way where most, most of the money was his family's money. A lot of the money originally came from his father, who was a successful Israeli businessman. Then Guy had all of his own money in it. And he set it up with this fee structure that was very fair. So you were totally aligned. So I thought, if I'm wrong, at least he's going to be wrong on a massive scale as well. He's going to hurt too if I'm wrong. And so there was a real alignment of interests. And he's intensified that alignment of interests over the years. So the share class that I'm invested in, it has a five-year lockup. But there's a 0% management fee each year. And it's based on Buffett's limited partnerships from the 50s. It takes 15% of the profits over a 6% annual hurdle. And that 6% annual hurdle compounds. So he doesn't go back to zero each year. It's like he's made it so that it keeps compounding against him. If he underperforms, he's got to get himself out of this hole in order to get paid. I just thought that was a very interesting insight into his personality, that he'd actually, he structured the fees to hurt himself if he underperformed. And I remember someone, someone saying to him, are you sure you want to do that? You could be working for many years without earning any money. And he said, welcome to the world of aligned interests. I thought that was really interesting. And it's the same with Josh Tarasov with the way he structures his funds. And it's the same with Nick Sleep and, and Zach with the way they structured Nomad. It's the same with Buffett and Munger, with the way they structured Berkshire. They're profiting with you, not off you. And I'm not saying any of this is an advertisement for Guy or for Josh Tarasov or any of these people, but I think it's a really valuable filter to look at the expenses, to look at the fee structure of a fund and say, are these people behaving in a way that's looking out for my interests? 
are they eating their own cooking? Is there is their family's fortune in their fun? Are they going to get paid well regardless of how they perform? And then I'll tell you one other thing about Guy that I thought was really revealing when I had lunch with him a few weeks ago. Guy has been on this long mission, right, over 24 years, I think, of running the Aquamarine Fund of basically trying to recover his family's fortune that was lost during the Holocaust, right? So his, his grandparents had a successful millinery company, a hat factory, I think, in Berlin, in Germany, and all of their assets were confiscated by the Nazis. And so he's been on this mission to recover that lost fortune. And he said to me a few weeks ago, he's like, well, I've kind of done it. Like, we're back. Like, it's actually worked. And so he's like, so what do I do now? What's my mission now? And he said to me, well, I think my mission is to make my shareholders' lives and the CEOs of the companies that I invest with, their lives, as extraordinary as I can. I thought that's a really interesting reframing of what his mission in life is, right? It's no longer to get back his personal fortune, his family's fortune. It's to make other people's lives as extraordinary as he can make them. So I think that gives you a sense of why, why he's such an important figure in my life. There aren't many people that you meet in life who you feel they're looking out for you and they want the best for you. And they'll remember there was that wonderful thing in, in the biography of uh, that Janet Lowe wrote of Munger, Damn Right, where there's a forward by Buffett. And he says something about how Charlie is generous in the deepest sense of the word. And that he said, many times I've seen Charlie take the worst end of the deal with me and with other people, knowingly take the worst end of the deal. And I certainly feel that with Guy, the way he structured the, the fees or the way that he's focused now on making his shareholders' lives as extraordinary as possible, not just with returns, but in other ways. He'll sort of say things like, well, I have this kind of timeshare thing in New York. If you want to go, if any of you want to go stay there, just let me know. If you want a subscription to this, let me know. We've got a corporate subscription. You know, there's something really lovely about that. And that's, that's had a big impact on me seeing that. I've seen him change and become more and more selfless over the years. I went to a wedding a few weeks ago where a hedge fund manager friend of ours got married to um, another close friend of ours, uh, mutual friends of, of Guy's and mine. And Guy had actually introduced them to each other. They asked Guy to marry them. So instead of having a, a rabbi or anything else, they, they had Guy do it. And it was this beautiful kind of rooftop wedding. So I'm watching Guy from kind of a you know, the second row, or third row or whatever, performance thing. I could just see this sort of deep joy that he took out of the happiness of this couple, like really deep joy. And he said to me afterwards, he said, I, I think that may have been one of the most important and meaningful things I've ever done. And he took his role of marrying them and helping them with the service, like so seriously. I mean, he prepared so much for this thing. You know, he kept wanting to work in God and they kept being like, no, we don't want, we don't want any mention of God. And so he was trying to kind of provide some sort of spiritual aspect to this thing without, you know, in a way that really respected everyone. And it was just a kind of kindness and goodwill to it. I think, again, like we were saying before, with when Nick Sleep and, and Zach went to Omaha and they saw the kind of behavior that Warren and Charlie embodied and their focus on, on businesses and business models rather than trading in and out and lining their own pockets and taking advantage of people, that it had, a, it had a massive effect. I think when you see people behave in that way over the years, it has an effect on you because it's not... So seeing Guy and the amount of joy that he takes in other people's successes or 
trying to help other people. That's had a big effect on me over the years. And I, I benefited from it myself because he's helped me in all sorts of ways. And I'm not trying to hold him up as a saint. It's not like he's perfect in every way. I, I, not in any way saying that. Like, you know, we're all deeply, deeply flawed. But I see that goodwill and what I think the Buddhists would call sympathetic joy or empathetic joy, that his ability to take pleasure in other people's successes. It reminds me of that, that instruction from Buffett that you want to hang out with people who are better than you because you can't help but improve. And so I think when I hang out with people like Guy or Nick Slee or a lot of the other people I write about, it, I hope that some of it rubs off on me because it, it gives me a sense of a different way to operate. It's very helpful. It's very helpful. It gives you an alternate model instead of the sort of sharp elbowed model of let me just look out for myself. That's been a great unfolding pleasure in my life has been to have that, that friendship with Guy and just to see, to see him behave that way. It's lovely to see. William, I had the privilege to, to speak to you quite a few times, not just on recordings like this, but in, but in general. And, you know, it's often we have on the agenda that we want to talk about business, but I often find that we talk about living according to your own values whether that is professionally or privately, and, and sometimes you know, those two intersect, of course. I think what I'm most impressed about is how deep you've been, been thinking about this and, and how vulnerable you also make yourself in terms of the struggles that we, that we all have as we go through life. Would you be willing to share some of your reflections of how to live according to your values? Thank you. First, that's very kind of you to say. I think one of the things that you can see from my book and probably also from this conversation is that I'm always wrestling with these questions of what does it mean to live a meaningful life and to live a life that's aligned with who you are and your deepest nature. When I was interviewing people like Charlie Munger or Howard Marks or Joe Greenblatt or Manish, any of the, any of the people in the book, I'm not just thinking about how do we get rich? What can we learn from these people about? how to get rich. I'm really thinking about what constitutes a successful and happy and truly abundant life. And so there's an element in the book and in our conversation here of me searching to answer this question of how to live. And that's also, that's also a huge aspect of my, of my reading. I, I spent an enormous amount of time reading peculiar esoteric books about Kabbalah, which is this ancient sort of mystical wisdom that's very, very exquisitely beautiful. Tibetan Buddhism, I've spent a ridiculous amount of time over the last year reading obscure books about Tibetan Buddhism. And I spent a ridiculous amount of time reading David Hawkins' books. And it was actually originally Monish turned me on to reading Power Versus Force, which I think is a very important book. But I ended up reading a lot of his more obscure books with titles like I, Subjectivity and Reality, and things like that. Or I just read them over and over again. I'm really trying to figure out how to live and how to think. Maybe that's one reason why Richer, Wiser, Happy has resonated with people is that it's not me coming in saying, I figured this all out. It's me actually groping towards something and taking advantage of the fact that I have access to people like Bill Miller talking about how he's drawn on Stoicism or Howard Marks on how he's drawn from Zen Buddhism. And it all seems totally interconnected to me. Remember that great quote that Charlie would often quote from a biologist about how everything is one damn relatedness after another? It's all related. And so it strikes me that how, how you run your business, how you treat your partners, totally related 
to your relationships or everything else. So you think, you think, say, about something like Munger saying, if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. Then think about what he said about marriage, where he said, if you want to have a good spouse, be a good spouse, deserve one. That's totally interconnected. There's a total link between the way he's running his business life, his investment career, and his attitude to relationships with his, with his friends, his partners, his wife. And again, this is not to say that he's perfect, but it's understanding that there's a, there's a link that the way you conduct yourself in one area radiates out in all of these other ways. And so th- think of something, I write about this in the chapter on, on Munger, where I came to this revelation that what really mattered to him was not just the scale of his victory, but it was the manner of his victory. It was the fact that he'd done it in an honorable way. There was this beautiful story that he told about how the best company that he and Warren ever saw, the best business that he and Warren ever saw was a snuff company. So I, I guess this was tobacco that you would, I don't know much, of, much about how you do this, but, but he said it was clear that going in that it was a killing product. And so he said, they look at this business and they're like, yeah, it's unbelievable. And they, they didn't buy it because it was a killing product and it was clearly causing cancer. You know, this other kind of famous family buys the company and makes $3 billion off it. And, and Charlie said, why would I have any regret about not having that $3 billion? He said, my life would be worse for having that $3 billion. And I just think that's really fascinating. That's a really fascinating insight into how you want to live your life. And so when I was talking to Ed Thorpe, for example, who, who I know you've interviewed, again, is one of the few people in the investment business who's as smart as Charlie, right? I mean, it's one of the great geniuses of the investment business. And I talked to him about his regrets in life. And he said, I don't regret any of the principal decisions that I made. I just think that's really interesting. That gives you a sense of how do you want to conduct your life when when someone like Ed Thorpe looks back in his 80s, now in his late 80s at his life, he's proud of the way that he behaved, not just of the fact that he had a hedge fund that didn't have a loose in 20 years. He's proud of his behavior, of the quality of his decisions. And I look at Nick's sleep, for example. I had this wonderful interview with Nick and Zach in their office on the King's Road in London. It's this beautiful kind of sunny room in the, the least likely setting. I mean, it's, it's on the top floor of a house in, on King's Road, and they have like their beekeeper suits there, their matching beekeeper suits. You know, this is several years after they closed the fund, and they still share this office. And they weren't going in very often, but they still share the office because they were still friends after all these years of being partners. Nick said to me, it's a partnership built on kindness. He said, for example, that when they were setting up the company, when they're setting up Nomad, he wanted to have it be 50-50, which was also interesting because Nick was kind of the alpha dog. Like he was, he was this very confident, very successful, good-looking guy who already had a really good record at Marathon where he'd been working. And Zach had been working kind of at Deutsche Bank as, an, as a sales analyst and had less of a clear record of success. And Nick immediately was like, no, no, let's make it 50-50. And he says, you know, Zach is hugely intelligent and he wanted him as his partner. And Zach was like, no, you should own 51% and I'll own 49%. And that way, if we ever have a dispute about anything, you'll decide what the right way is to go. And Nick said to me, when someone has loaded a revolver and handed it to you across the table and said, here, shoot me if you like, said, how can you mistreat them? And so their partnership was built on trust and kindness. 
So when I see people like Nick and Zach behaving that way, or Guy Spear behaving that way with his shareholders, or Munger talking about his relationship with Buffett that way, or Thorpe talking about behaving about making principal decisions or saying to me, look, the single most important thing in your life is who you spend your time with. Like that's way more important than than your money. It's who you spend your time with. When I see things like this, when I when I'm interviewing people about these subjects and I'm hearing these lessons about how to live and how to behave, I just find it immensely helpful. And it's not it's not that I've nailed any of this. There's a there's an enormous gap between the behavior I espouse and and appreciate and admire and the way I actually behave, there are many occasions when I fall short. So I'm not trying to be kind of self-righteous and self-congratulatory here. But I think I think it's really useful to study the great investors with this sense of what constitutes a truly successful and abundant life. I remember Molly Munger, Charlie's daughter, saying he was never interested it, you know, he wanted to be financially independent, secure, but he wasn't interested in doing it and losing the game of life. That's a really important nuance that I would just encourage your your listeners to think about. Is that the, the the reason we go to Omaha year after year is not because of how rich they are; it's because they embody a certain type of behavior and principles and manner, and that that just gives you gives you a sense of direction in life. It gives you a sense of let me try to be a little bit more like that. You said something very profound there. Well, all of what you said, William, was, was very profound. And you talked about you know, these outstanding people and, and how it's not only about learning from them about achieving financial success, but there's this extra layer of living by the right values, being there, being useful for other people, for the community. I have selfish reasons to ask you this question, William. So I just want to preface the question by saying so. But it's easy, if I can use that word, to study amazing people who are not only smart, but who also live by wonderful values. It can be a bit more challenging if there are really smart people, financially successful people, but where you might not agree with the way they live their lives, or you might even find them despicable, or whatever kind of word you would, you would use for mm. that. Because as you said, like how you spend your time, that is your, your life. How do you wrestle with that, that you come across many financially successful people, but also perhaps you don't feel emotionally that it's nice to not just interview, because that might be for X hours, but also you have to recall that interview and go all your notes and spend weeks on sort of like mentally with that other person. How do you, how do you wrestle with that? That was a very powerful process when I was writing the chapter about Sir John Templeton, who, as I admit in the book, I didn't particularly like or warm to. And I felt kind of guilty about that because everyone always makes out that Templeton is kind of this saint and was hugely moral and was brilliant. And so I was wrestling with the fact that there was something cold and austere and judgmental that we talked about this the last time I was on your show, but I, I was trying to explain, here's what I got wrong. Here's what I failed to understand. And that I think I now understand about why he was extraordinary and what he was trying to teach me. That wrestling process was incredibly helpful and fruitful for me. But on the whole, in this book, I've actually kind of made a point of not writing about people unless I admire and like them, which is a very idiosyncratic thing to do for a journalist. Because when I was coming up in the world as a journalist, 
I was perfectly happy to write attacks of famous people. I worked at Forbes, for example, and I loved taking down. The very first story that I did for Forbes was a story called Mining the Suckers, which was about a mining billionaire who I just thought was a total scoundrel and unethical. That was great fun for a young, aggressive journalist with a chip on his shoulder wanting to show the world how smart he was and how fearless. That was a, I was able to take those flaws in my, in my character and harness them to do some really good investigative stories. And I, I did a story for Money Magazine, a long piece many years ago. It was about the Kaufman Fund, which had this terrible fee structure where they were just making a fortune regardless of how poorly they performed. And my story was headlined, do these guys deserve $65 million a year or something like that? It was basically about how they'd set up this thing where they didn't have their own money in it. They had underperformed the market by something like 50 percentage points over the last three years while making $180 million between them. And so I, I think there's a real place for that kind of aggressive journalism about people. And in that case, I actually did like them. And I thought they were really good investors. I just think they were kind of screwing their shareholders. And so they were kind of poster boys for this kind of less savory, more self, self-serving area of Wall Street. But in this book, I just didn't want to write about people that I didn't admire. And so it's, it's just an idiosyncrasy to focus on people who I think are kind of admirable and instructive. I think there are some people, some journalists would look at it and would be like, you're too close to the people you're writing about. You like, you like them too much. And I think that's a, that's a perfectly fair criticism. I think the upside of it is that because I'm writing about people I know well and who I can empathize with, they open up in a way that they wouldn't if I was out to get them. And so there's a kind of intimacy to the kind of writing that I'm doing where someone like Bill Miller will actually tell you what it was like to go through an incredibly painful period of underperformance. And so that's partly the reason he's doing that is because he senses that I'm not out to get him. Because I'm also telling him about the periods in my life that have been very difficult. And so this is the way I've come to deal with it myself is just to focus on people who I think you can learn. You can learn from not only about how to get rich, but about how to think better and how to live more wisely. Because ultimately, just the ability to make enormous sums of money by playing this game really intelligently, there's nothing hugely redeeming about that. There is an element of this game that's tremendous fun and tremendously interesting. But the fact that you manage to make billions of dollars by beating the market or by charging obscene fees doesn't make you inherently admirable. And so why, why celebrate those people if they're not admirable or insightful in how they conduct their lives? Wonderful. Wonderful, William. It's always such a pleasure speaking with you. Like I mentioned last time you were on the show, like your book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, that's the best book I've read here in 2021. It's, it's just a wonderful book. And I think people can just tell from listening to you that it's a wonderful book read by a wonderful person. Before I let you go, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share with the audience where they can learn more about you, but also Richer, Wiser, Happier. I have a website, which is williamgreenwrites.com. And I'm on Twitter. I'm reasonably active on Twitter where I'm williamgreen72. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm really happy to hear from people. I'm, I'm perennially aware of the fact that I'm getting behind on replying to people. And I feel guilty about it as messages come in on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and at my website and stuff. I really like hearing from people because I, 
I feel like we're all kind of on this journey together of trying to figure out how to invest better, but actually how to think better and how to live better. And so it's lovely when I hear from from people who've been studying the same sort of stuff as me, who've read my book, and are like, yeah, yeah, that really helped me. I I love that. So please feel free to, to reach out, but don't be offended if it takes me a while to get back to you. Do the note. William, again, thank you so much for taking time to, to speak with us again. All right, guys, if you listen to this on your podcast app, make sure to follow if you don't already. And if you like it, make sure to write a review. That helps other people find the content. William, I'm sorry we have to let you go now. It's been absolutely right. wonderful. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.